Hi, I'm Kate Hudson. And my name is Oliver Hudson. We wanted to do something that highlighted our relationship. And what it's like to be siblings. We are a sibling rivalry. No, no. Sibling rivalry. Don't do that with your mouth. (laughs) Sibling rivalry. That's good. So today's guest is really interesting. I'm was so excited to interview her, yeah, Dr. Shafali. And actually the first time I heard about her, I was pregnant with Ronnie and I have to say this because I just love her so much, but Oprah Winfrey said to me that I had to read this book that when she read it even though she's not a parent, it was just Emo- so emotional for her because she wished that every parent had this as a manual in their life. So, of course, I ran because you do everything Oprah says, and I ran and I got the book. And she, I mean, it was really eye opening for me. So, I was very excited to be able to interview mm-hmm. Dr. Shafali. Her books, Conscious Parent, Awakened Family, Awakened Family, and Out of Control. Yeah. Parenting um, books, parenting Shining New Light and on Parenting. Yeah, parenting and sort of the fa- family dynamics. I feel like I already do everything that she said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's like 80% joke, but then a lot of it I was sort of like, uh, you know, I, uh, I totally understand this. I totally vibe with this. I feel like instinctually this is how I parent we have a lot of differences which is going to be really fun to sort of talk about in the way that we do very different parenting do styles. things well not that you know. not very different no but. but certain things that you allow your ch- or i allow my children to do that you don't you know i have more of an old school style i think i curse in front of my kids i have no problem with showing them r-rated movies you know, I mean, my daughter is six years old and is, you know, watching like Saw 5. This is terrible. But It's like a source of contention. But my kids are amazing children who don't curse and who are kind and sweet and uh, loved and fulfilled. They're great children. Well, I'm not going to say your kids aren't great kids because I love them like as, I, as my own children and they're the best. Yeah. Anyway. There are moments... Well, where I would moments. handle things differently with my kids. So we'll get into yeah, all of this. Yeah. I'm so pumped. This is so cool. Because we do, you know, the celebrity interviews and their their siblings and and but to have you on, especially because like being a father is my number one priority in my life, aside from career and everything else. And I think I, I could probably speak for Kate, you know, as well. So it's really fun for us to sort of talk to you and uh, have a psychology session. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you grow up? I grew up in India. I came to America at the age of 21 and thought I'd be deported back uh, to get married to some Indian man and had to beg my father to not 
subject me to that fate and he released me um and but that was quite a process because you know indian patriarchy really does a number on its women way more than the western patriarchy so uh i had to decondition and become my own person far from home grew up without grew up in america without any family and had to find and forge a new path you know so it was a phenomenal process of revealing to myself who i truly was separate from my culture i mean i grew up i came here and i literally have one cousin who lives far away so i literally had to find a whole new me which was phenomenal it was, wow. uh, it was and and your dad um your dad seemed it was progressive i guess in the sense that he was allowed you to sort of do this and set you free huh Yeah, he he said if I did not set you free, I would be doing you an injustice. But my point to other parents is the fact that we have to even ask for the key to li- our liber- liberation is is kind of a travesty. You know, we shouldn't have to ask. And my I tell my father that now and he's like, "Well, at least I gave you the key." I said, "Yeah, but I shouldn't have had to ask." <laughs> the, the, you know, the the key was my birthright and that's what I teach that our children's uh path to their sovereignty and their autonomy is their birthright it's no liberated parent who's giving them the key you know this is our delusion of grandeur they have the key we take it away and then some of us give it back but that's what needs to be undone our children need to own their autonomy right from the start they are I, free i remember yeah. when i was pregnant with rider my mom you know and i was young i was 23 pregnant and mom i was sitting there and i was really big i i, I was huge and um i got really emotional and i go i don't know why i'm so emotional right now and she goes well honey the second that he leaves your body he doesn't belong to you anymore so you're this is that time with him that belongs to you and then they come yes. out and they don't belong to you anymore exactly. and i was like that was the greatest thing that my mother could have ever said to me right it's such a biological trick you know especially for us women because we do house them so they they do come from us especially biological children and so there's this this trick you know this egoic trick that happens that you think you then possess them and you can't fault us you know but we have to undergo this shedding of this illusion that we own them in any way you know it's a process and then very few people are open to that spirit, spiritual awakening yeah well it's interesting going back to sort of what you were saying prior um how much does culture play into what you were the message that you were trying to get across because obviously we live in western civilization where uh cultural norms are what they are but then you move beyond that india you know places where there's been thousands of years of culture and how and what to do meaning yes you are supposed to be placed with a husband and this is the way you're supposed to raise your kids how do you square that you know when you're thinking about the globe when you're thinking about the world and children of the world Yeah, well culture is the anathema. Cult- cultural conditioning is our psychological makeup. And understanding that you're living in this matrix of not necessarily truths to your best interest will wake you up. And it's a shock, it's a paralytic awakening when you realize that these cultural conditionings with which you have been subjugated really are not to your best interest, are not about your liberation. They are about your civility, about your your following the crowd and staying in in the in the tight lines of mainstream culture. So awakening to that is the liberation that I speak to and allowing our children 
to not chase the uh, success at the end of the rainbow and the happiness at the end of the rainbow, but really to experience this life path as they are authentically meant to. And whatever that looks like, and of course we keep them safe and sound, but maybe we can't. And and surrendering to that and allowing our children to surrender to their authentic life experience is really the signature of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And do you have siblings? Yes, I grew up with a sibling six years older than me. And and a boy, a boy or girl? A brother, a and brother. he lives in India. He's yeah. still in India. Yeah. So you leave India, you come to, is it, do you go to New York? Do you go right? No, I, I went to California and I studied at a really avant-garde school. It's called the California School of Integral Studies, which integrates East and West, which became the foundation of all the work I do. So it was a place made in heaven for me because I came from the East with Eastern philosophy embedded in my subconscious and then was, uh, you know, exposed to Western psychology. But then I, over there at that school, I was really exposed to meditation and went on my first Vipassana meditation when I was 22 and really began exploring the spiritual underpinnings of my psyche and understanding the illusory nature of reality. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me too. I need, to, I need to. I went to Boulder for two years <laughs> and drank and skied and then left. Almost, almost died and had to <laughs> yeah. go to college. Path. Everyone comes on a different path. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I've been in therapy for 25 years. <laughs> well, so, there you go. You there know, you go. We have something in common. I. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, but that, um, so just, again, re- <laughs> reading, first of all. I'm feeling very inadequate. Right no, now. but I, I, I love the way that you approach life. I mean, that Eastern philosophical um, practice, so to speak, spiritual practice, whatever it may be, we sort of grew up with that. My mother, as you know is very much into her meditations and you know she never really pushed it on us no, either which no. was really interesting it was something that she would invite like i remember she'd always invite me in to meditate with her she'd always invite me to experience this with her mm-hmm. and i there was a moment that I was like oh it's meditating it's not and i remember the first time i really meditated with mom i was 16 in in muskoka and i went in and i sat with her and i just cried the entire meditation and I didn't know why I was crying I just and she was so amazing she really does become a teacher my first meditation was with mom in dharmsala actually um with his holiness (laughs) 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 so horrible but I met the Dalai Lama and I was a not was not a practicing spiritual person, but I got in a room with this man and I started crying for no reason. I didn't know why I was. I mean, now I can sort of understand, you know, as I was, I was 19 years old, now I'm 43, but there was such empathy and such compassion just flowing out of this person that you can't help but be affected by it on an emotional level, you know? Um, Anyway, but what I wanted to say, what I wanted to say, though, actually was, um, you know, the way that you approach life, it seems like it's less, and tell me if I'm wrong here, it's less about parenting and more about us, the adults, the parents being the tip of the spear. So it's almost like the parenting is the byproduct of the work that you do on yourself. 
I mean, yes, you exactly. Know. Raising our children is the byproduct of the raising of the self. Right. So when you raise yourself and you use the the intimate, sacred relationship with your child as your reflector, as your mirror, as your teacher, not to become more successful or more pretty or more, you know, wealthy or with more status, but really to go inward to awaken to the disruption of your patterns. How can I not pass on my unconscious emotional legacies to my children? Can I consciously and intentionally choose what I wish to pass on? But in order for us to do that, you have to awaken to the fact that you are emotionally vibrating with your past. And unless you realize that, you know, but it's hard for people to realize that because it's the fish in the ocean. They don't even know that they're in the water. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, our subconscious ambiance lives with us constantly, the one we inherited from childhood. So to become awakened to our own second skin, it, it takes that process of, of great deep inner work and great courage. When did it click? that you wanted to do the work that you're doing right now with yeah. for, for children? It clicked when I became a mom, you know, when you go through the process and my daughter was, so for the first three years, I was pretty unconscious relative, you know, to my current state of consciousness. And so I kind of screwed it up because I couldn't believe that after all this healing I had done, you know, I was 30 years old. I had been doing this for nine years, rigorous meditation, intense therapy. I was uh, entering my PhD level of clinical psychology. Least of all me should be so unconscious. Well, that bubble popped really fast because I saw the guttural, primitive nature of my incessant ego spewing out at my child. It took me three years to realize what I was doing. And what I was doing was mass projection, 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 lack, lack, scarcity, wanting, expectations. And the kid wasn't even three. And one day I woke up to, you know, kind of bring what I was doing on the mat in meditation into real life. It finally coalesced that that ego that I'm trying to tame in meditation was right here. You know, we're not trained as parents. We're not exposed as parents to the mammoth of this parental ego. And I thought that the love I had surely would overshadow the ego. You know, if you're coming with good intention, all is fair game. But when I realized that it was that same ego that I talk about in my therapy practice or uh, try to battle in meditation was showing up despite the intense love I had for my kid, that was my epiphany. And I remember it. And that's when I began writing about it. And I was scared to reveal this to the world because I was scared to look at my own ego. And I, I thought to myself, I won't have a practice. My parents, all my parents in my practice will fire me because who is more defensive than the parent, right? How can you tell the parent it's all you? This is about you. It's about your triggers, your anxiety, your fear. I could barely muster the courage to look at that reflection myself, leave alone, share it with the world. So I never thought this would go viral, so to speak. Yeah, but the, di know? but the difference is, though, is that you are not sitting on a pedestal. You are, you are right on the level with your clients, with your patients, yes. because I've yes. heard you sadly speak. Sadly so. Sadly, I've heard you speak before, so. <laughs> you know? I mean, we, I've heard you talk about how you have done things correctly and incorrectly even now. And I love how you talk about the evolution. We are constantly evolving, always, yes. always, always. I think also it's about the individuals. You said that when we start imposing our own 
desires onto our children is when we start failing as as parents. But it's easier said than done. That's an so, unconscious. So, exactly. That's an unconscious so, so thing that we like do. You, you you find yourself constantly. But that, I mean, that is life, period. You're constantly at battle with your ego. Your ego always creeps up, mm-hmm. whether it be in business, whether it be in relationships, whether it be, and by the way, mostly with your kids, because that is the great extension of yourself. Mm-hmm. I always find people come to me and ask me advice all the time about like life and balance and kids and work and success. And I'm always like, I don't have an answer to, to that. I don't know. I mean, it's never perfect. It never feels truly balanced. It's an everyday process of tuning in and staying mindful. But there's a beauty in that. There's a, I, I like that. The off, the imbalance is sort of interesting. You're always on your toes. You're always sort of thoughtful and mindful and trying to figure shit out. But it is our fear of living in eternal groundlessness, which once you begin doing is so beautiful to live in. But people are so riddled to live in that so paralyzed by fear to live in the eternal impermanence and transience of life that we've created these institutions like the religious institutions, which tell you, you know, it's kind of like the elders realize that we human mortals are just too scared to live in the groundlessness of life. So let's make it easy. Let's give you a prescription, tell you who to believe in, tell you what day to pray, how to pray, what to wear when you pray. And then it just takes out all the mystery. And then you just believe in this external source. And that way, You don't have to be afraid of living in the groundlessness. But the Eastern mystics understood that true mastery of your mind comes in learning to not rely on anything external and to go within yourself and live in the impermanence of life because it is that is the truth. There is no permanence. There's no ground. There's no security. It's all an illusion. It's so liberating, though. If you can live in that space, it is the f- most freeing, liberating feeling. I find that when I'm in the, mo- the purest, most open place in me, when I'm connected and feeling an understanding and permanence is when I am the most vulnerable and emotional. It's the most, it's like that bittersweet thing in life that you are so in love that you have to leave it. And when you have a beautiful life, when you have great connections with your children or your friends or your family, it's so bittersweet. It's so, it's such a, shitty thing that we have to all die. (laughs) So instead of actually expanding even more and feeling more beauty, you start to close those things off because it's scary that we're going to lose them. Yes, it's unfathomable beauty and uh, a depth of, of openness that comes with entering the present moment. That is what we're seeking. We want that, but that is our greatest fear because then with that comes the realization that we have to leave it. And it is only for this moment. But if we don't live in this moment, we lose the moment. So yeah, we don't have to confront the loss of the moment, but we don't live in the moment. So this is the paradox, you know, and if you understand what Eastern mysticism talks about through meditation, then you enter the moment, the moment elasticizes, it becomes eternal, your life slows down, all the distraction goes away, all your tethers to the external world that you're enslaved by now get cut, and now you live free. Yes, you understand that you can die 
now because you're already dying anyway and you're open to that now so yes you have that that imminent sort of uh end of life always with you that sense but it also expands you to live fully now and it's and liberating we all want that we all want to mm -hmm. live fully mm -hmm. And yet we're so afraid to live fully. And then within all of that, that means like, so what, experiencing your life, how are you going to experience your life? It's like, yes, there's great things I want to do personally. There's all, but at the end of the day, it's just all about how I'm raising my children. Like, that's it. That's the, what you leave. That's that's it. I mean, it, none of it means anything if I'm not getting that right. But it's funny because it's a bit counterintuitive in that, you're raising your children, but that's an active sentence. You're raising your children, but we need to let them liberate themselves as well or find their own freedom. You want to do well by them, but at the end of the day, if they turn to drugs, say, does that mean you raise them wrong? It does. It doesn't. It just means that, you know, the energies in their life for that moment, for their destiny unfolded in that way. You know, raising them comes again with that counterintuitive understanding. You can raise them, but you have no control over right. them and no control over who they will become. There is no trajectory, no strategy. And this is the groundlessness of conscious parenting that people protest against. You know, everyone gets upset with me because I didn't give them the three strategies to get their kid to poop right and eat carrots and, you know, wear, wear a tie straight because I don't give them those tips and strategies. I teach them to live in the groundlessness of consciousness. And when you do that, then the child understands that even if they didn't poop right or they get C grades, they mm -hmm. are okay. They are okay because they're experiencing their life as they are meant to, mm -hmm. you know? So this is a metaphysical dimensional awareness that people don't have because people are very caught up in the physical reality of life. How do I look? Who do I, where, who, which status group, which peer group do I belong to? What are my grades? So we're caught by this, you know, constant maelstrom of external attachments. And this is the cause of misery. Mm -hmm. This is the cause of suffering. Mm -hmm. So when I, especially in schools, when today. I text my son, like every hour when he's at a party now that he's a teenager and I say, don't do drugs, I'll kill you. <laughs> is that not a good way to parent? <laughs> no, I, I think part of it is being human and letting them know I'll just, you know, all I'll do is kill you. It's okay to be human, but you, it's not about so much, again, the words you say, it's really your understanding that you have to release all your expectations. Otherwise, you are setting yourself up for misery. Also know in parallel, concomitantly, that you have no control. And mm -hmm. as long as you have that awareness, then when things go, quote unquote, awry, nothing really goes awry. Everything goes to plan. But according to the material world, if things go awry, you're ready with the embrace of you know, what this moment has for you and you're ready to enter it. You're not going to resist it. Half our problem is because we're resisting reality. Right, but, yeah. but, but, but we have to take some, and again, you know, challenge me, but there, we have to take some responsibility in, in how we raise our kids and who they become. If Jeffrey Dahmer, right, was born, 
And he was came into our family. We adopted Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, jeez. Well, would Jeffrey Dahmer be killing and eating people? I mean, what's what? Where's your thoughts on nature versus nurture? You know. Well, let me tell you, nature is huge. Nature is huge, and so is nurture. So there's no line, and it's an interaction. So you can you can take responsibility as a parent. Of course, this is the whole point of conscious parenting: take responsibility for your own brokenness. But again, to do so with a sense of shame or dread or regret or remorse or guilt is not coming from a place of wholeness. So we take responsibility for our own raising as much as we can. But we also have to understand that things happen in our children's lives. You know, parents are devastated when their children go off the beaten track and they blame themselves. And I absolve them of blame. Sure, Take accountability for your part in it. We are all co-creators in our reality, but we, we are not the masters of another's destiny. You're never going to do everything right. There is, there's no such thing. There's no such, it's an illusion. There's no right. So does your kid who goes to, oh, you know, uh, an Ivy League school and work uh, in a fancy corporate corner office, is that doing it right? What is doing it right? My indicator of doing it right is a lot, is how authentic can the child feel uh, in their life? Can they live their truth and be honest about who it is they are without fear of shame and reprimand? You know, that to me, when my child can come to me and say, mom, I vaped, don't kill me, let's talk about it. That is more valuable to me than the good kid who doesn't vape. Now, I'm very happy if my kid doesn't vape, but you know what I'm trying to say? I that totally I would rather get that. Yeah. The kid I think all of them are doing good in that department. Yeah, just that, <laughs> we've that, got that. That upfront, tell me the truth. You know, the repercussions are worse, honestly, in my situation. If you're lying to me, well, I feel like what you're saying is is that if your kids feel confident coming to you and sharing what's going on in their lives and their personal story, then you have an openness and a connectivity that will carry them into their entire, their whole independent life. Mm -hmm. You're teaching them that being open and making mistakes is okay. Right, and, and you come across to them as a human being too. You know, you're not coming from this pedestal of all knowing, you're relatable. But again, if we don't do our own work, there's a danger that we use them as our therapists, as our, as our codependent enablers, and we don't want that. Totally, I feel like sometimes I find myself when I when I when I step outside and observe myself or I become sort of mindful and aware in the way that I'm parenting when I feel like I'm off a little bit as a parent I realize that I am trying to impose on my children what I didn't get as a kid mm -hmm. and especially in, in school, uh, when it comes to work ethic, when it comes to, you know, buckling down, I am sitting with my kid, with Wilder, my oldest, and, and constantly trying to help him. But it's almost to the point where sometimes Oliver and I'd be like, maybe we should just like not do, <laughs> maybe they'd well, be better these students are, these are if the we questions. just let them. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck up. Well, you know? well I mean, I, but you're talking to extremes now. You know, you're you're talking complete like benign neglect to the and then on the other end, this obsessive, 
compulsive desire to fix them. So I think the answer is in between, you know, you, you, you take their lead, you give them guidance and, but you don't come with this anxious energy that you're going to now give them what you didn't have, or you're going to complete them, or you're going to straighten them up. It's that energy with which you come with. And most of us come with this highly anxious energy and our children pick up on it and they either comply or they revolt. You know, the more the parent owns their own stuff, and lives their own life fully, the child will pick up on less. There will be that separation. But the issue is that our stuff spills over. We're not happy. We're not satisfied. We're moaning. We're complaining. We're passive aggressive. We're not fully liberated in our own lives. Our children pick up on that. Mm -hmm. So that's why I teach parents, it's all about you. You do you. Own it consciously, work on you, the less will will sink out and seep out into your children. Yeah. Managing different parenting styles is something that is what so many people deal with now. I mean, over 50% of people are raising children are co-parenting. So what would be your advice to the parents that, that sort of approach parenting a little bit differently and are trying to co-parent? Yeah, most parents will find themselves in this conundrum of having a different parental style. And it's tough. It's really hard. So for those who are trying to be conscious, I first say, don't expect your spouse to become conscious. It's hard enough for you to become conscious, you know, because what happens is say the woman begins to awaken. Now she's really pissed off at her husband because he's not awakening. And this was the typical scenario. You know, women come to this a little bit more easily. Um, and they're more of the seekers of consciousness. More typically in my, all my conferences, I have 75% women. And it's just what we do. But it doesn't mean that men are less able. It just means that there will be an inherent discrepancy. So the first thing is to understand that everyone is at a different point on the continuum of consciousness. You cannot expect your spouse to be on your point. Having said that, you have to embrace the difference and don't stop your own awakening because your partner can't parent consciously. I say, you know, an awakened family is one conscious parent with their child. It just takes one person. You know, often we retard or pause our own awakening because no one else is coming along with us. Awakening is a lonely process. You will be doing it alone. And but as you keep doing it, you will then attract a more like-minded, like-hearted tribe. Like you said, you'll attract and you'll be ready to receive more healthy relationships as you become healthy and whole. But you may have to leave old relationships behind. And this is another, you know, it's the warning sign on, on, the, on the pack of marriage that you may be leaving your old relationships because when you, want, when you begin to awaken, you leave that dimension, you leave that I, whole crowd. I also find just from having so many women who've been through this and and friendships that when you and I always say, you know, when you have your first child, it really brings out the, the parenting styles is a make or break in a relationship. So I find that when you have your children, that's for a relationship is the biggest test. It's a huge challenge. And people take it as a personal failure, or they look at their love as a failure. But it's really, as you said, it's nothing to do with the quality of your love. Some people are just not meant to parent together. You know, parenting takes a specific sort of union that is that you don't anticipate. You think, oh, I love this person. 
know we create a family. We don't realize what a huge set of skills parenting takes just on your own, leave alone with a partner. So I always tell people to have compassion toward their love and compassion toward their union. There is no such thing as failure. It just means that you weren't meant to be parents together. But, you know, awakening still has to happen. And it is possible to raise a child with a different parenting style. You just have to kind of make your case and believe in what you believe. And then if you can't parent under the same roof, you may have to separate. But there is no but one way to raise a child or children in general. Everyone has a different style, so to speak, or a different way to do to do the different way you do things, correct? Yeah, I but mean, I think I think there now what I've come to delineate is an old paradigm and a new paradigm. So I like to think of conscious parenting as the new paradigm, and the old paradigm is more controlled based, more fear based, more regimented, more prescription based, mm -hmm. more hierarchical, more linear. Right, and but, the, but what about what about this though? You know, because you say that sort of you know one of the first things that you need is sort of a spiritual practice. Practice. How do you? Can you be a conscious parent without a spiritual practice? No, you can't. Because con con no, because consciousness means you have to awaken to your own self. That means you have to go inward. So how do you go inward? You can't go inward looking outward. You have to have a practice that takes you inward, and meditation and self growth are the ways to go inward. So you have and to be Eastern philosophical, or can it be a any sort of a meditation? Meaning. You know, uh, whether you could be a Christian or Jewish or Muslim or, wh or whatever. I mean, as far as the spirituality goes, religion and spirituality obviously are two very different things. Is there a certain spirituality that you have to sort of adhere to to be a conscious parent? Uh, a practice that allows you to detach from the external. So if the practice is still, you're contemplative, but you're focused on an external goal on an external idol, person, thing, prayer, uh, sanctuary, it's not going to make you awaken to who you are. So anything that allows you to go inward to understand the nature of your inner reality and connect to your inner being. You know, there's a being within our being that we are completely unknown to. We are strangers to. It's that being within our being you know, that sense of wholeness that psychologists talk about, where is that sense of wholeness? It's within this outer layer. So consciousness requires you to get in touch with that inner being, that inner wholeness, which is separate from your identity, your title, your accomplishments, your perfection on the external world. So if Christianity and Judaism and any organized religion allows you to go inward without attachment to the outward, then yes. Which it does, which it does. So, so real quick, real quick, real quick, real quick. Kate, let me talk for two seconds. <laughs> um, have you heard of the Hoffman Institute? Mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm, the so I, I, I went, I did it. And it was the most profound experience that I've had in my life. Um, there's so many things that I would want to talk to you about this, but it just, it jived so well and so much with what you write about and sort of your own philosophies. But interestingly enough, when you go there, they use all different spiritualities in religion, <clears throat> the music they play, the philosophies. Um, it seems to be based in CBT and cognitive behavioral therapy. That seems to be the foundation of it, but it is about 
old patterns. I mean, I'm sure you know what it's all about, but it is about these negative love patterns that you adopt from your parents on an unconscious level. And it's about awakening and being conscious of those patterns, understanding that you are not your patterns and your parents are not their patterns. I mean, it's a generational thing. It changed my whole life. It changed my relationship with my wife. It allowed me to be vulnerable without fear. Um, And then from a parenting standpoint, especially with my oldest son, Wilder, I realized that I was doing things incorrectly with him. He's a very sensitive boy. And I, I, I was awakened to this fact that he is me, meaning I see myself in him so much so, and I hadn't before Hoffman, and I was a little too hard on him. You know, I was want, I was almost yelling at myself. I was getting angry and disciplining my my inner child, so to speak. And it was a really cathartic, amazing, amazing experience for me. And it, and uh, you know, I, I just wanted to know if you knew about the Hoffman Institute. Right. And Basically. and what you speak to is important, is important because, yes, I send people there and to do the process. Mm-hmm. So there's different layers of awakening. So the first awakening that I like to speak about is your awareness that we are living in a material world that is never going to give us sustainable happiness or joy or freedom. And as long as we're stuck in the material world, which is most of us, most of the world is trapped in just the material existence of getting their paycheck, paying their bills, getting to work on time, dealing with traffic, and they stay stuck there where you're constantly reacting to life as if life is against you. So that's the most, you know, common prevalent way of living. And then when you begin to awaken a little bit, you go into the psychological realm, which is what you did with Hoffman. Mm -hmm. You begin to go back into your ancestral legacies, your patterns. You begin to understand, wow, I'm not living a life. I'm living a pattern. Mm -hmm. And the pattern comes from my childhood. And now I need to deconstruct that and begin to disrupt those patterns. That's the psychological layer. Very important. That's why I'm a psychologist. I help people do that, get mm-hmm. in touch with their inner child, what was left wounded, how do we heal that? And I strongly encourage everyone to be in therapy because mm-hmm. we do have psychological baggage that we need to clear up. Then as you as you ascend, you get into the spiritual and the transcendent layers of awakening. And that's where you realize, okay, I've done the psychological healing. I've left the matrix of the material world. And now I want to discover who I truly am. Mm-hmm. And in order to truly discover those depths of your deepest registers of existence, you go into a contemplative practice. This is so true because, you know, I felt like I came back from this experience and the people who I love the most didn't truly know my capabilities of of, of how much I could love, uh, especially my wife. You know, there was a vulnerability, a lack of vulnerability that I had in my relationship. And, and I was like, oh my God, I, I, you, I'm so excited because you get to f- finally experience like me at, at, at my, at the core of who I am, same with Kate and my mother and everyone else. Um, and it was just profound for me, you know, because in se- essentially you feel like you've been not living a lie, but living in, in the, sh- in a shell, you know, of yeah, some your sort. veils are coming off, you know, as you disrupt the patterns, you wake up, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're not living leashed to patterns that are subconsciously, unconsciously ruling you. Mm-hmm. So now you, those, those defenses over your heart have now been ripped away mm-hmm. and now you're ready to show your heart. You know, you don't need those defenses anymore because you've healed so much stuff. All your woundedness got healed at that Hoffman process. And oh, this is a great plug for them. They're going to be so happy. <laughs> Please, this whole podcast. I know, I know. 
I bring it up every single like we could be with like Jim Carrey and I'm like Hoffman uh, have you process. done Hoffman? <laughs> I just love it. I loved it so much. Yeah, it's but I think what it speaks to is the is the necessi- the necessity of a psychological process and you do that with a therapist, a guide, a coach where you go to the deepest recesses of your childhood and begin to heal what was left unhealed. And then you come back more open, more awakened, more courageous to love, to be yourself, to be bare, to be raw, to be transparent. I do find that the combination of a psychologist and a practice is paramount to opening up all of your pathways to really kind of understanding yourself better. What do you think about kids in therapy? Well, I don't believe in kids in therapy without or to the exclusion of the whole parental system uh, because the child is not the issue, in my opinion, right? They are, they become the identified mm. issue. But some children need a safe space to explore, to vent, to express. They need the language. They need the emotional artillery to talk with their parents. And so in that aspect, if it is to get to the parents, then I agree with children being in therapy. Now, after the age of 13, 14, when children are more owning of who it is they are, then they can be without the parent, you know. But if I see a a kid below the age of 12, I will most typically be mostly seeing the parents. Oh, entirely. I have another quick question because it is about children. And you say a lot that children express themselves freely, but that adults don't. And where do you think that that kind of starts to break down? Well, it depends on the temperament, the nature of the child. Some children get beaten down fast within the first year and a half or two. Those who are really sensitive, fragile, empathic, those bleeding empaths, those natures get shut down fast. And you got a servile child, a very good child. Those are the children we call good children. And then the more tough temperaments, you know, where they're tough to get through, they break down later. But everyone is giving up pieces of themselves to an unconscious family system. There's just no way to avoid it. My child has given up pieces of herself to me, despite how much I've endeavored to be conscious. It is just the fallout, the default of living this human existence. So no no need to beat ourselves, as we, we've talked about. It's okay. We will be screwing up our children. The point is not to avoid it. The point is to understand and to minimize its damaging effects. So your daughter's 16. Is she in 10th or 11th grade? 11th. Just from my own experience, I find everybody talks about teenagers. Oh my God, teenagers. Especially with girls and their mothers. Everybody has something to say about it. Is she ever like, and Mom, I, you think you know everything because oh you write God. these books she, she and you think you're it, a conscious yes. parent, but you don't know shit. <laughs> All the time. She must must declare to me how little I know. It's her mission in life. That's so funny. <laughs> and, but are you finding that you're enjoying the teenage years? Because I actually must say that as he gets older and older, I just have more and more fun with him. It gets a, it's a more it's a different kind of relationship you have with your teens than obviously you do when they're younger because it's more about being there emotionally for them than it is about logistics. Yeah, but I'm actually finding that it's it's so wonderful getting to know him as a young man. How is your experience? With a yeah, I'll just talk about the prototypical experience and then get to mine. Prototypically, the reason why teenagers get such a bad rap is because 
parents are mortified of finally having to relinquish control. And teenagers live on the edge. They're, they're very chaotic and it's all showing. They're so mature on one hand and then utterly delinquent on the other hand. And it's confounding to us. I mean, talk about being confronted with the groundlessness of life. Teenagers embody the riskiness of life, you know, and they force you to confront the edginess of life. And so that's why parents have a hard time. They want their sweet, compliant, little docile child that they could put to bed at nine o'clock and they don't want this raving lunatic who won't go to sleep till two. You know, what are they doing when I go to sleep, right? We're losing control. And our identity as parents who are in charge is now coming into question and we're terrified. So that's why teenagers get the bad rap as if they're the bad ones. It's just because we have to lose our control, right? But in terms of my uh, experience, yeah, I, I, you know, because I'm on the spiritual path, for me, experiences that challenge my ego, that call me to my humility, pull me to my knees, are embraced by me. So when she tells me you have a Buddha complex or a Jesus complex, or, <laughs> you know, every day it's a different person. She's like, you're just complex. You have a Dr. Shafali complex. So whenever she tells me that, I laugh. You know, I want to be irrelevant. I want to be annihilated in my ego. So uh, I I want it, you know, I embrace it. So I just laugh. I love it. It's a slap to my my ego, which is always needed. And I, I want it. I, I look forward to it, but I can see how it prickles parents who are not ready for it. What's your, well, let's talk about discipline for a second. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, just give me your overall on, on discipline and where that fits in in your world because I'd like to sort of just get into that as far as yeah. the way I do yeah. things and maybe Kate does things. Yeah. So I don't buy into the old paradigm of discipline. Yeah. I think it's a lazy paradigm where you just ground your kids and take away their iPad that you gave them and you throw them into the room because they're making you uncomfortable. So all of that control-based reactionary sort of discipline, uh, I call into question. What I prefer is that parents really check their boundaries, right? And really understand their consistency, their hypocrisies, their loopholes. And how do you create an ambiance of alignment in your home? And, uh, you know, in my personal life, I'm, I wasn't so good with boundaries and that was my failing and also my greatest learning. It had to do with me as a, as a woman culturally and why I was uh, afraid of conflict and how I grew up. So I used my mishaps in boundary making to evolve me, to understand me in the greater context of who I am as a woman from India. So I challenge parents to look at their control issues, at their boundary issues. It's in every parent. No parent has done boundaries right. I know, but, but when but- you talk about boundaries, like I have a big thing with screen time. I have a big thing with the connectivity of families and putting everything down and focusing on each other. And and I'm very strict about that. So it's like yeah. phones go down at a certain time. We don't use them at the table. Television's not on all day. We don't we don't put the television on in front of our baby. So we have these boundaries for me, which is not a discipline. It's not about disciplining. It's yeah. just about connecting. And it's not about your ego. So I always ask parents to think about boundaries in two ways. Is it an ego affirming boundary, such as you have to play your piano for six hours a day? That's ego affirming because if it if it wasn't ego affirming, everyone would be needing to play the piano all across the globe. It's obviously not developmentally necessary. It's your ego that's pushing your kid to play the piano versus what you're doing, which is 
connectivity, enhancing connection and, and bondedness in a family. That is life affirming. So I always ask parents to step back, especially if they're having conflict with their kid and ask themselves, am I imposing this on my kid out of my ego, which is most likely the case, or is it truly a life affirming principle that I'm trying to institute? And even in the life affirming principle, you know, how do I go about it that allows their needs to be met as well? And we negotiate that, you know. Now, screens, I'm, I look at it as the plague. So the screens are, it shouldn't even be a parenting issue. They have become a modern-day parenting issue because of the mobility of screens that every kid has it in their pocket. I love the TV now. I wish we could go back to our complaints about the TV. At least yeah. the TV didn't talk, walk, and no, go in the car with I, I you. I know, I know. But, but here's the thing about that. There, again, talking about the evolutionary process of humanity, of technology, of everything, okay? The devolution, though. This is devolution. <clears throat> Fine, the devolution, however we want to say it. But you're saying we wish for TVs then. We're, but but when we had, no, I'm just saying. As, I know, as I know. A, but what I'm saying is, when we had TVs, yeah. then we were wishing for the radio. Yeah. So in ten years, when all the kids are on AI, we're going to wish for iPods. And but iPads. I'll tell you, there's progress, which was the TV, and there's progress, which is the train and the airplane, which allows for connectivity, and then it goes to a tipping point, to a point of no return, which I believe we're heading toward, where it is devolution because it's taking us away from human interaction. The TV did a good job doing that and now we're going further and further away where people are becoming more encapsulated in their isolated insular little bubbles wow. and they've forgotten how to have human interaction and then you have the increase of depression you have suicide it's social isolation yes no, and, and, I, I, I totally agree with you but there is another there is a, there is another factor with this though there is an increase of communication albeit it's maybe not in person but these kids are communicating through text and FaceTime and there's different ways of communicating my kids, you know, they used to play Fortnite. They're not into it anymore, but now they play Minecraft. What's happening with these video games now, too, is it's creating these online communities. I watch my kids deal with Minecraft, and it's like four or five of them all talking and building something. They're laughing. They're having fun together. You know, there is something to be said for for that as well. You know, not the mindless shooting video games, but, so, you know, I see it happen. Right, I, but I see I, these kids I, connect this, through this. This is where Oliver and I have different parenting stuff. So I was like, I am a, I hardly let my kids play any video games. And, and it's not about, like, I let them play, but it's just, it's like a certain amount of time. My thing is, it's just the brain. It's just about the optic nerve. It's the brain. It's what it does to the brain. It's what it's creating. And we know what this is. The research talks about it. It's just not great for a developing brain. It's good to exercise it for them to know it and have fun doing it. But it's just but balance. It's all balance. It's balance. It's balancing it all. You know, my kids are out on mountain bikes jumping 30 feet in the air and camping. And they're also on their screens, you know, and and there's a balance there. Right, I right. I agree that you cannot fight what's happening because this is our children's new world. But to a certain degree, especially with kids under the age of 13, the more we can introduce human to human connection and bonding, it will create a foundation. And then they can be released into this AI world, which they're going to inevitably be 100%. released into. But the more we can give them as a foundation, they will be more emotionally sturdy, more emotionally connected because of that. The thing that I just wrestle with, honestly, doctor, <laughs> is that these kid, kids across 
the kids that I know that are raised in all different ways. And some of them are great kids and some of them aren't great kids. Everyone is so unique in their personalities and who they are. We can't raise them all the same. All three of my kids are totally different, you know, and there's ways in you, there's an instinctual thing that comes, you know, for me, and you do it differently with each one. And as I was saying in the beginning, we raise our kids differently. You know, I let them watch things. I, when I was a smoker, I smoked in front of them. I was like, this is my life, you guys. I'm not going to hide anything from you. Do I smoke and it's horrible? Yeah, but I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want. And I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not saying that you should do this. It's disgusting, but I'm not going to sit there and, and, and sneak cigarettes. I'm going to have drinks in front of you guys. This is who I am. You know what I mean? And that's the way that I do things as far as movies go. PG-13 or R-rated movies, I don't care. You know, I curse in front of my children. My children do not curse. I mean, they're... They, they, I, I don't know. I think I mean, Dr. Shafali is like, we should probably have a couple sessions. No, I'm just over. saying. No, 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 no. I, I agree. My kids I are trans- beautiful, I, amazing I, children. No, I, I, prefer, I prefer transparency to hypocrisy any day. So I have no disagreement with, I'm not sanctimonious at all. Do what you need to do. That's why I say, because every kid is different, there's no strategy to parent. The only strategy you have is to become conscious mm-hmm. of who you want to be in the world. Mm-hmm. And the more conscious you become, the kids can do what they want with it. The kids are not the byproduct of you. The kids are going to be the byproduct of what they pick up dependent on their own personalities. So don't control what they pick up or not. You never know what they're going to pick up. You just have to do you consciously. What about going against that? Meaning like my dad, our dad left when I was, when we were young. Um, You know, his dad, my grandfather left our dad in the middle of the night when my dad was five years old. So there was a pattern that was existing. I, as a young man, made a conscious decision. I was like, I do not want to be that person, you know, and I railed against it rather than this pattern sort of overtaking me. I went the other way with it, you know. Yeah, but again, you know, if you revolt against a negative pattern, it appears like a good thing, right? You're revolting against the abandonment your father subjugated to you too. But the point is not to revolt it just out of a revolution. Mm-hmm. The point is to truly make authentic choices for your own life. What if in the future, not you, but another person like you, came to a, a, a choice point that they had to leave their marriage, but they didn't have to leave their child? That's okay too, right? You do it as consciously and authentically you you find your own truth, you know, and that's the point of life is your father seemed, I don't know about your father, but mm-hmm. his father, if he left in the middle of the night, he obviously was tormented or tortured that he had to leave in such a drastic way. Your decision is to be involved in your children's life, no matter what the surrounding circumstances look like. You'll always be there for your children, but you're not doing it out of a revolution. You're doing it out of an authentic coming to your own desire, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we want. What has been the most rewarding part of your work to date? My work is a calling and I'm excited every day to do it. I think the most gratification comes when I hear a parent tell me how they have a better connection with their children, how I've freed them from their anxieties, how they're living more authentically. When women come and tell me that they've released themselves from the enslavement of their past, how men come and tell me that they're living more vulnerable and transparent lives. You know, the the gratification from seeing people palpably change their lives, you know, and you're an instrument in that in some way 
is so, it's addictive. I'm an addict to it and uh, uh, not for the gratification, but for the real like, come on, let's transform. Let's help you alleviate your suffering. What a great joy I have to be a witness to people's unfolding. I, I'm so grateful that I, I, I'm, you, you're exposing my work in this way and I get to touch people's lives and they allow me to enter their hearts. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't take it lightly. Uh, I take it as a very serious, passion-filled mission that I, I will rise to every day. And the best way I can rise to it is by doing my own work and right. cleaning my own craft. Well, I was about to ask yeah. you, what are your, what are some of your greatest struggles as a human, you know, that you deal with every day that if you yeah. could, you know, snap I your fingers. I think my greatest struggle has been this whole deconditioning uh, as an Indian woman. Um, I, I really was, was enslaved by this legacy of being this perfect Indian giver and uh, Indian giver, but caregiver and a nurturer. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, it, at the end of the day, I didn't give anything, you know, because I was I was so depleted. And th that stereotype of being this perfect woman, that woman who was always giving, really, uh, you know, paralyzed me. And working through that, all those conditionings of what it meant to be a woman, an Indian woman, and arriving at my freedom and my own worth, and now being... Uh, you know, my own autonomous being has been my journey and, and what I hope to have given to my daughter as her legacy, that she doesn't have to be, you know, enslaved by the patriarchal mission that I was enslaved by. And I hope I freed her to be this, this woman of today's era. Mm, that's great. Amazing. Authenticity is like hot right now. The word is hot. The whole sort of theme of being authentic, you hear it's like a buzzword now, you know? Um, and of course, at Hoffman, it was about finding your authentic self. Is everyone's authentic self beautiful? Or do some, can, authentic, can, can your authenticity be an asshole? You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a difference between, you know, people often think being authentic means to just say whatever comes in your mind and, you know, just being honest. Oh, well, I was honest. I told her she stunk. I was honest. She, I told her she was a fat pig. I was honest that I was just being authentic. No, you were being unconscious because authenticity is always in context. You know, you're always very aware of who you're speaking with, their developmental capacity. So authenticity comes with a high level of discernment to your context. You know, and, and, and that's why mm. it takes work. So it's a buzzword. It's being thrown around like manifestation and all these other buzzwords yeah. of today's world. Yeah. And they're all empty at the end of the day if they don't come with deep inner alignment. Awesome. You know? That's so great. It's so true. Authenticity. You have to contextualize authenticity. Yeah, for sure. Because it's so true. Because it, it, you're right. So many people are like, oh, I'm authentic. And they're just dicks. I'm like, that's not authenticity. Just being a yeah, dick. So it's a euphemism. <laughs> it's a euphemism for really bad behavior. What are you looking forward to in your life right now? Well, to write more books, I'm, I'm currently writing a book on the awakened woman. So that's fabulous for me to be able to spread that message and help women come out of their unconscious uh, servility to the good label, to the label of good, and to break free from that. And I think, you know, just finding ways to teach more. And um, But I, I've learned not to be restless anymore. And I've learned to leave the state of craving behind that I had in my 30s. And to now just receive beautifully, to show up fully, and to challenge myself in different artistic ways, you know. 
I think Dr. Shefali and I should be best friends. (laughs) (laughs) I think we are. I feel like, I feel a a real friendship happening right now. (laughs) I feel like I want to be a therapist. Can I, can I be a therapist and not go to school for it? Because I'm not good in school. This has been, uh, we could talk to you forever. I've got so many. Um, uh, I'm so grateful that you came on our podcast and you're just. I'm so grateful. Yes. Thank you so much. If you could give a parent one piece of advice, what would that advice be? If you just literally only had one thing to be able to say to a parent. That every trigger you experience with your child is really an inner trigger. It's a triggering of your own inner wound. It has nothing to do with your child. Therefore, there is no bad child. All the badness you're projecting onto them is coming from your own inner sense of badness. And the reason why I say this is the nugget, because I see so many children being destroyed by parents who believe they're bad, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. and there are no bad children. It's just broken parents. Yeah. Thank Thank you. Thank you, guys. Sibling Revelry is executive produced by Kate Hudson, Oliver Hudson, and Sim Sarna. Supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. Editor is Josh Windish. Music by Mark Hudson, a.k.a. Uncle Mark.